Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my co-host, political scientist Trey Orndorf. How are you doing today, Trey? It's wonderful to be back with you, uh, specifically, Michael. Yeah, it's been a while since we've done a show together. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. So, you want to get us started off? Yeah, why don't we start off talking about the big North and South Korean meeting uh, this past week. Uh, And, you know, this is interesting. I think we'll probably spend a few minutes on it, but I really pretty much agree. The New York Times basically summed this up as being short on details, long on theater. And I think that's absolutely right. Uh, There's this really interesting moments. We have all these great pictures. We have the border handshake. Uh, But kind of beyond that, what do you think about what has actually come out of the meetings specifically? Yeah, you know, I agree with you. Not a whole lot. I think didn't President Trump tweet something about Korean War being over or something like that? Uh, Jumping the gun just a just a tiny bit, Uh, you know, and I think there seems to be, well, at least in some quarters, uh, expectations that I think are a bit too high, given what we know about uh, Kim and given what we know about North Korea's history of breaking many agreements. So I'm a little concerned about that. And, you know, I certainly I've, I've heard that there's already some suggestion that China is loosening up its enforcement of sanctions based on what Kim has done recently. And and if you're being cynical and trying to understand North Korea in light of what we already have seen in terms of their actions in the past decades, it's like, well, you would understandably think that this is a cynical ploy to kind of get the sanctions loosened a little bit so they can kind of keep on doing what they're doing. So, I mean, I'm all for friendship and and Kim and Moon, you know, stepping over the border and doing the the hokey pokey and the DMZ or whatever it is. But I'll believe it when I see it. And I you know, again, I think that denuclearization means something very different to, uh, to to Kim than it does to Moon, than it does to Trump and a lot of other folks. But, yeah, it's certainly a step in the right direction. But uh, let's let's not be overly optimistic. The other point I'd make is that it's understandable to me that a lot of people in South Korea are being so optimistic or so hopeful about this, because you think about it, Seoul is a city of over 10 million people, and it's only around 35 miles from the border there. And so, you know, they know that in in the event of some sort of military action, that would just be absolutely devastating. And so, of course, they want the best possible outcome. And so I get that, but I just... I just don't trust, I I just don't trust Kim. I just don't trust North Korea, but, and I hope I'm wrong about this. No, I I absolutely agree. I mean, it's wonderful that you get, I mean, you get two big policy platforms coming out of here. You get that, as you had noted, you get that complete quote, complete denuclearization end quote. But of course, you know, the devil's always in the details and we get the, the framework for a potential peace between North and South. And that's wonderful, but there, there's nothing behind that yet. Uh, what I will say, though, is is that I don't want it to sound like uh, I'm not I mean I don't want to speak for you, Michael, but I don't want to sound like a cynic in the sense that I'm sad that we're having a meeting or that these two sides have decided to uh, choreograph uh, what's happening here. I mean, I, I see that as a positive stride. I mean, but as you're noting, does that actually mean as this moves forward that we're going to see the things that one might assume these words mean or not? Right. And I think that's a different question. So, you know, you, you don't want to say boo completely to the spectacle of it all because you have to have that before you can have anything else. 
but you know expectations yep. need to be tempered yeah and, and you know in terms of how we got to this point there are some people some Trump supporters especially saying that this maximum pressure strategy of the president is what's responsible for this. And there are others saying that it's, well, it's Kim who's just very confident and now in having a solid nuclear capability. And, you know, I think there might be some truth to both of those things. And I, I certainly don't uh, say a lot of positive things about President Trump. Uh, but But I think in this case, you know, those sanctions, uh, especially getting China to go along to the extent that they did for a while, have really potentially had some bite. And that, you know, you can look at that and say, well, maybe that's a somewhat of a, of a foreign policy victory for the president. Though, on the other hand, I would say, given all the nuclear testing that North Korea has done, would any other American president have done differently. Well, I don't know, maybe Bernie Sanders, whatever, I'm not really sure. But I know I think that uh, Hillary Clinton presidency, we would have seen very similar sort of overtures. But of course, that's that's, you know, obviously a big hypothetical. So I will give, you know, the, the president, uh, you know, I think he is that that pressure has really helped. But again, I think it's also that now that Kim knows that he has nuclear weapons that can do some damage, that's a big part of it as well. Well, and the other thing that's really interesting is Chinese scientists have their hypothesis is basically that the test sites have been burned out, that they can't be used anymore. And so mm, this is right. a time for a, a potential switch. So you've got to have a pause anyway. I mean, again, I'm not trying to say that has to be the only cause, uh, but you know, you're talking about the Trump variable. It's just really, these kinds of things are really difficult to tease out when you want to say, well, what, which variable affected this and how much did it affect it? <laughs> it's a difficult yeah. task in the best of circumstances. And in this kind of, you know, this far removed from it, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. And as, as President Reagan uh, famously said, trust, but verify, you know, and yeah. so I think the verification part of it's going to be incredibly difficult in such a, a closed and paranoid society like like that of North Korea. So, but, you know, we, 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 of course, all hope for the best. Agreed, agreed. Well, now kind of moving towards more domestic and a longer term ally, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president visited, and we had a bit of what some are calling the bromance between him and, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, anytime you get to talk about the meaning of the word dandruff in the New York Times and the oh, Washington God. Post, yeah. right? But anyway, we'll put, we're going to put those things aside, of course. But what's really interesting that's happening here is is we have Macron coming. And on the one hand, we have a man who is positioning himself to be, I think, very close to Trump personally, while at the same time trying to kind of push policies that contradict the major policies of Trump. I mean, Clearly, he is trying to have Trump reconsider his position on Syria. He is clearly trying to reconsider his position on steel tariffs, uh, which includes the EU. And of course, the thing that he's going to come back to in his address, uh, the issue with the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. And so what's really fascinating to me is when you're looking at this, you have uh, Macron trying to, on the one hand, say, Trump and I are close as, as people. We get along. We understand each other. We're strong leaders in that sense. Uh, but on the other hand, he wants to kind of bend Trump on some of his major foreign policy policy positions. What do you think about that, Michael? Well, yeah, I agree entirely. As you point out, there are these four key issues, tariffs, Iran, uh, Syria, and, and the Paris Accord. And when, when we take a look at these issues, uh, 
uh, sort of taking these apart, we can see that there is an awful lot of distance. I think especially uh, President Trump is the most, I called him strident even, uh, on trade. Uh, on May, you know, May 1st, those tariffs are supposed to kick in at 25% on steel and 10% on aluminum. And uh, currently the EU has an exemption, but that's only until May 1st. And my understanding is that, and understandably so, is that the EU does not want to commit to the voluntary limits on exports that the administration is asking for in order to continue that exemption. And, you know, we've talked about trade before, and you as a libertarian, uh, and I agree with you on this, that these this, these trade, uh, these tariff battles are just not a good thing for anyone, really, and, except for one tiny little segment of the American economy, but it hurts more than it helps. And that's, that's truly unfortunate. And I know you agree with me on the trade issue, certainly. Oh, for sure. And I think one of the, I think the problem with these trade issues is that the people, and as a matter of fact, Ken and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, the problem with them is, is that they help and hurt very small, but very visible uh, populations of people where the benefits, while huge, are more dispersed. And so you get into the, you, you have a, you have trouble. And I think this is a problem that Macron faces with Trump. He's got to convince him that this less easily understood, diffused good is better than this very concentrated, you can kind of put your finger on it, but minimal issue. And I, I mean, what do you think about that when it comes well, to the, I mean, yeah, I agree. I also think there's this issue. He seems to be, the president seems to be fixated on this idea of trade deficits. And he has this idea in his head, at least certainly for public consumption, that a trade deficit is a bad thing, full stop. And the bigger it is, the the worse it is. But mm -hmm. yet that's I mean, that's an incredibly oversimplified way of looking at it because there are so many things that go into this. You know, of course, there's there's trade in goods then there's trade in services where the U.S. tends to run a little bit of a surplus. Then there's what happens to this money, this trade deficit money. And a lot of this money from foreign countries gets reinvested in the United States and creates those jobs that the president and understandably is so interested in seeing create created. And then there's also the fact that the United States is full of a lot more spenders than a lot of countries like Germany, for instance, where, you know, there's much more of a culture of savings and all of these things go into that. And when you ask economists, and this is both on the right and the left, they're almost invariably, they will say, you know, trade deficits are not that big of a deal are not the indicator you really want to look at in terms of economic health. And yet the president has just fixated on this. And again, it's one of these things where you know, I don't know if it's a case of whether or not he just doesn't understand how international trade and international economics works, or if he just doesn't care and he's just saying something that he knows not to be true to appeal to a certain audience. I guess in a sense, it doesn't really matter because we end up with the same result. But 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 clearly, this is something that's a lot more harmful than it is helpful. And unfortunately, I think because the the story that the president is telling about this is so simple and clear, but also so wrong that it appeals to a lot of Americans who don't understand that this actually is not in our best economic interest. Well, and it goes back to, it goes back to economic policy. I mean, the story of protectionism is an easy one and it, and it fits in yeah. with the national identity that Trump wants to hit, which is another fascinating uh, juxtaposition with Macron, right? I mean, he's pushing in Congress and he says, look, we don't want to have 
uh, America first, you need to kind of move beyond the narrow borders of nationalism, which, by the way, is a little fascinating from the country that invented it. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but nevertheless, we'll we'll take him as it is right now. And but it, it is interesting because those things go together. This idea that that is money flows out, you're losing strength, you're losing power, you're you're losing identity. And I think it's more about that than it actually is the economic policy. I, mean, I think if we yeah. could have Trump on the show, I, I don't think that he he'd be like, whatever the economists are gonna say, like forget them. The the thing that matters is is that when you have this deficit from his point of view, you're losing your power, you're losing your identity, you're losing who you are. And that's more important probably in his mind than these, you know, these little economic things that'll yeah. work themselves out as the time goes on. Now, I think that's a wrong-headed view, but I think you can't take away Trump's view of the trade deficit from his view of America first. No, I, I agree entirely. I think that's a great point. Uh, kind of added to that, I also think that this is just another example of the president seeing almost everything as zero as a zero-sum game. That you know, we can't have, we can't all win. We can't design a system and that is good for everyone. There have to be winners and losers. And certainly internationally, I'd argue in many domestic policies as well. But this it comes out most intensely in his views on trade and his views on America's place in the world and so forth. And that's really, that's really unfortunate because certainly there are some instances where these things are zero-sum games. But not always. And trade is, I think, one of these examples where we clearly know that it's not a zero sum game. And, you know, the president just doesn't seem to be uh, able, willing to accept that. You know, it's just uh, endearing to me though, Michael, that you're going to agree with me on this so much because like you are the left perspective here and you've, and you've just agreed with your liberty. I mean, I, I have nothing to disagree with. you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, and I will say, you know, some of my, some of my friends on the further left, like, like Bernie Sanders, for instance, would actually be more in line with the president mm -hmm. on that. Now that would be, they would pitch it more in terms of we're all for free trade, but we want to see it to be fair trade and labor standards and other things like that. And that tends to apply obviously a lot more to trade with developing countries where where safety and worker rights and all those sort of things aren't at the same level as they are in in most of the EU countries and so forth and and I that that's a whole nother argument now I would argue that uh, you can make a case that yes there need to be improvements in that but if you take a look at what's happened in some of these developing countries so many millions and hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people have been lifted out of abject poverty because of that. And that's, that's, I think a good thing, but that's, that's a whole nother argument, certainly. Right. Cause we're talking about the EU here. And, you know, one last point about this, the, the conversation going on here between Trump is the idea that you, that we see Trump once again, kind of delegitimizing de the international organizations yeah. that are supposed to take care of this, like the World yeah. Trade Organization, the WTO. I mean, one of the things I deeply agree with Marcron on was he's like, look, commercial war is a problem, but if there's problems with it, we have institutions designed to deal with. I mean, that's why we created these treaty arrangements. That's why we create these international organizations. And when you and when you see Trump and when the, and when the country then moves away from that, you end up uh, giving them less power. And as a result, it makes it harder for them to do the things that we want them to do, which is to create a free trade system. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm wondering, moving on to the, if we can move on to the uh, Iran issue, you know, because there's mm -hmm. a deadline with that as well, uh, that 
May 12th is the next recertification deadline for the uh, Ron deal. And, you know, it seemed to me initially that the reporting, at least, was that Macron thought that he could get President Trump to agree to, or at least informally agree to recertify the agreement. But it seemed to me that by the time he left, he pretty much said, well, no, he's not going to do that. And it's really now the issue is convincing the United States to uh, not impose sanctions on EU companies that do business with Iran. So it's kind of the difference between pulling out of the deal and just saying, well, you know, that's fine. We're not going to sanction other companies. We're just going to take care of our own companies, you know, focus on that. And actually working to destroy the deal. And we don't really know what the president's going to do with that. Uh, I, I would hope that he doesn't destroy the deal. You and I might have some disagreement there. I'm not really sure. But I, you know, I said from the beginning that I think that the Iran deal is a highly imperfect deal, certainly, and it could be improved. You know, I think uh, a system of uh, of deadlines or sorry, of of uh, because right now there are these points at which Iran has agreed that it won't, uh, you know, uh, have uh, this material and won't have these centrifuges and that sort of thing. And these are kind of like set points. I think you could make it sort of a rolling type of thing where we could we could agree that well, if we want to, they want the sanctions to stay off, then they have to push back this deadline and so forth. I would be for something like that, but it seems to me that the president just wants out of it entirely, and and I, you know, I think that's a big problem. What, what do you think? As a matter of fact, I agree with you on this one. I mean, one of the things that's going to make me different than some of our other conservative commentators like Jay is because I take a more libertarian point of view. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to be far less hawkish for if your listeners are wondering than than you're probably your average conservative is. And it's interesting because I think what we were just talking about a few minutes ago about North Korea is a comparable instance here for Iran in the sense that in general, I believe that the evidence suggests that having increased ties with a country is what is going to give you the best opportunity to moderate the negative effects of the things yeah. that they want to do. So mm -hmm. if you want to have more peace with the country, if you want them to not be playing fast and loose with, you know, fissionable material or uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, nuclear material, um, then what you need to be doing is trying to increase your ties with that country. I mean, again, take a look at North Korea, one of the most mm -hmm. isolated countries in the world. And Absolutely. This, and this is where we have the, the bulk of our problems. So if you want Iran to be a bigger problem, well, then it's sometimes it's difficult to say. We mentioned a minute ago, you know, what variable is going to be a big deal? Well, isolate them. And then they're going to want to do a lot of crazy things. Yeah. Uh, or at least they, and they won't care because what's it going to matter? So yeah. my suggestion is, I agree, the Iran deal, is it a great deal? No, but it's a deal. And it's something that creates connections. It creates economic connections. And anything that moves you in that direction is going to increase their connection to the rest of the world. And as a result, they're not yeah. going to want to blow it up. Yep. Well, you know, let me ask you then, and that kind of leads into, I think, a perfect lead in, we did not plan this, to a third point of, I guess you call it conflict, is, you know, the Paris Climate Accord. Now, President Trump, uh, you know, announced a, a while ago, you know, announced the U.S. withdrawal from that. Now, that withdrawal won't be complete until 2020. It's just a phased thing. And so to me, it's not a an utter disaster necessarily, assuming what I hope happens in November of 2020 actually does happen. But, you know, I certainly saw it as, as a setback. But to me, that's that would be my argument 
for staying in saying, well, you know, it's important to the fact that the United States is the only country that is not part of this agreement, you know, certainly an in, in imperfect agreement. Absolutely. Uh, but of course, it's not binding in, in any way. And so the idea of being part of the international community, working to improve these ties and improve this agreement, that's what I think is important. And yet I think it's another example of President Trump playing to his base and not really not really buying into multilateralism, you know, and you talked before about how, you know, he doesn't necessarily like these international institutions and so forth, and he'd rather deal bilaterally with countries. And that's just, that's just clearly not how the world works anymore. And I think it's for the better because the more intertwined we are diplomatically and economically, the less likely we are to have these huge problems that we've seen again and again and again. Yeah, you don't you don't shoot at people that provide your bread. I mean, right. It's that simple. Now, specifically about the Paris uh, Accords, I will say that when you actually take a look at the Accords, I mean this. So it, this is all about rhetoric, and I, and I don't know much if you agree with this or not. But when you take a look, say for instance, China uh, promises because basically each country in the Accords gets to promise whatever the heck they want to promise. Yeah. And then they say, we're going to meet whatever it was we said we were going to meet. So in the case of China, for example, they said that they're going to have a plateau at 2025, I believe, for their admissions. That's where it's going to get to the top. Well, what's really fascinating about that is a couple of years ago, we've been studying that. And do you know when we think they were going to plateau? Long before anybody thought about the Paris climate. 2025. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think we promised to do what we were already doing, you know, but, but that's I, my, but that's my point. It's, it's such a, you know, maybe innocuous is the, is the wrong word, but, but exactly your point. So it's an agreement that doesn't really bind us to anything. We can pledge whatever we want, essentially, you know, it's so, why pull that out? to me yeah. was just so ridiculous to well, pull out of that. And to me, it's just the most kind of uh, craven playing to the political base. Well, I mean, in all honesty, isn't isn't that really what, in some ways, this was either direction? I mean, you had a look. We're gonna t- we're gonna take positive steps to reduce climate change by doing nothing absolutely differently, on the <laughs> one hand. But we're gonna say that we have this accord, which I mean, again, I'm not. I mean, just to be clear for our listeners, right? Um, because I know that all of us have slightly different positions, right? I think that it is very scientifically evident that we are experiencing man-made climate change, right? So just mm-hmm. hear that as I'm making this argument here. But that doesn't mean that you're no I, Scott Pruitt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have no Scott Pruitt. Please elect me to the EPA or nominate me to the EPA. Um, that, as a matter of fact, I mean, I think shortly that job is going to be open. So I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. So if Donald Trump listens to us after Fox and Friends, you know, Trey Orndorff, there you for go. EPA. Uh, but. So that is very much real in the case, but that doesn't mean that I think that the accord will get us any closer. However, and this is where I agree with you, Michael, uh, this is all just a matter of winning or losing votes. Democrats like it and want to stay in the accord because they want to be viewed as doing something positive toward climate change that requires absolutely nothing. And Trump, even though being in it doesn't matter one iota, along with Republicans, want to get out of it because they don't think climate change matters. So you get this complete, it's just, it's a complete position taking. That's all it is. <laughs> and, and, and you know, it's, it's that same sort of uh, zero sum game type of mentality. It, it's very similar to what we were talking, what I was talking about a little bit uh, earlier. And that, you know, again, it's this dichotomy between jobs and, the, and climate. 
right? And, and the environment. And that's, I mean, in some cases, there are certain trade-offs that have to be made. Yeah, but, you know, that's not necessarily the case. There are ways to design policies where it's not such a stark zero-sum type of thing. A, a while ago, and this was quite a while ago, I talked to a uh, uh, former uh, rep- rep- Sorry, Colorado Governor Bill Ritter about this on the show. I had him on the show, and you know he, he pointed out it doesn't have to be that way. Certainly, and China is making some huge investments in clean energy technology. And my concern is that if we keep our head in the sand on this, is that China is going to essentially, you know, in the zero sum terms, win the future on this, and and we want to be part of that future. And so that that's a big concern to me. No, I agree. But, you know, just in terms of the visit with the accord, I, I, I mean, this is just position taking. So, I mean, I yeah. agree with you long term, um, but on this particular issue, I, I see it just as being a position taking between the two presidents. You know, what do you think in terms of uh, Syria? Because that's certainly an interest of, uh, of France and, and France, and they talked about that a lot. And, you know, you know, my sense of things is that there maybe is some room for persuasion agreement uh, on Syria. Of course, President Trump, you know, said that he would, he wanted to pull out our, our remaining troops. Uh, but in, in France is, uh, I think, a bit against that, you know, and there, there are a lot of weird alliances and so forth in there. I mean, Iran there comes back in again because they're a major ally of Syria. And then Israel comes in there because they don't really like Iran for obvious reasons. They want to destroy Israel as a state. And Trump is clearly no fan of Iran. He's no fan of the man he calls animal Assad. So, I mean, I think that there there's certainly some room to perhaps convince the president that we need more of a we need to keep an American presence in there. And certainly that's the view in the EU is that the United States is critical to uh, maintaining some semblance of, I guess you could say, order, because we've seen. And I think to me, it's fairly clear that as we have withdrawn from this, Russia jumped in into this vacuum and now is a player, a major player in a way that it wasn't five, 10 years ago. And I think given what we know about Russia and Vladimir Putin, that's an awful development. And that's exactly why, you know, a a lot of people say, well, why is the United States so involved in the world? We spend so much money on defense. This is why, because when we pull out into this vacuum, all sorts of bad stuff happens. And so we can't just pull out and just say, well, let's, let's just hope for the best and let them take care of their own problems in America first. That's just not how it works. You know, it's funny. We, we, we we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, on the show and it was interesting because we kind of had to flop of positions and maybe we'll do it again here. This is one of the few times when I actually, in principle, at least agree with the president. I'm not sure what continued American involvement in foreign expeditions like Syria will net us. I mean, I agree with you that, that, that it's not great that Russia's being, but in the same way that Russia failed to have much success on any kind of me- metric you want to have when it came to Afghanistan, and then we come in and we have the same kind of failure of success. I think the problem is, is there isn't always a clear idea of, well, what is, what is the goal? What are we attempting to achieve besides some keep the Russians out or keep yeah. the Iranians out. From my point of view, you know, trying to be the uh, the police of horrible situations is a long-term failure unless you're trying to very specifically do something that's actionable. Now, he, and then this, now, of course, here's where I'm going to disagree with Republicans and uh, Trump. I think the best way you can fix some of these things is by having 
more you know easier better immigration policies <laughs> um yeah, but that's, a, I mean, that's not exactly yeah. the topic here. So, yeah. Well, yeah. And I understand what you're saying. We do disagree on this. I mean, my, my feeling is that from the beginning in Syria, our problem, and, and this is what just, I hate is that we have this sort of presence that just really doesn't do much. I mean, I think there's something to be said for the kind of go big or go home type of argument where we do just enough to say that, well, we're sort of kind of doing something and there are a few missile strikes here and there, but it doesn't, do much. I mean, we're spending money and time and resources, but not enough to make any kind of a difference. And so my feeling is that if we want to commit to a region, we should commit to a region. And so right now, I think we have a few thousand troops in Syria. You know, we've lobbed a few missiles in there and so mm -hmm. forth. And to me, that's the worst of all worlds, essentially. If we want to, I think from the beginning, we should have committed to you know, coming in on the side of the rebels. And I know that that was a super complex thing, but oh, I mean, the Syria, God, the Syria situation is a huge mess and just in terms of figuring out who all the players are. So I'm not downplaying how difficult that would be to do, but I think we, we sort of walk on eggshells around some of these things when sometimes what's called for is just, you know, look at what, look at what Russia did. They said, okay, we're going to go all in on this and we are going to be allies with Assad and provide all this support and do all this stuff. That's the kind of thing that is effective. And I think that we didn't do that. And I think that's, you know, I'm not necessarily calling for, a, maybe I am kind of calling for a, an expanded, yes, in fact, I am calling for an expanded U.S. <laughs> role. I kind of convinced myself in my argument there. So yes, that's what I am in fact calling for. I agree with, I agree with our European allies that we need more of a role there. Well, see now, but that, that is at least, I mean, at that point, you're going to be having some very measurable outcomes. Okay. We want to defeat the reigning government in Syria, right? I mean, that's that's a sustainable potentially goal. I mean, we might disagree whether we should do it or not, but that's a goal at least. I'll agree with you yeah. on that front. But you know, that's going to require saying, look, it's time to kill Assad and everybody who had anything to do with Assad. And yeah. I don't think there neither the Obama administration nor the Trump administration has wanted to take that position for a variety of reasons. And given that I don't think that either a Democrat or a Republican president is going to take that position, and I don't think there's the will in Congress to do it, then what is, the, I mean, as you rightfully point out, what is the point of lobbying exactly. so, you? Yeah. So, that, it, so in that case, that's where you and I do agree, because yes. that this sort of kind of, yeah, sort, you know, kind of half, you know, what sort of policy doesn't really, doesn't really achieve much. So yeah, we do agree on that at least. Well, you know, I think that we've kind of exhausted. I mean, we've gone from every possible issue that they've discussed. Maybe we should Absolutely. move back domestically again and talk a little bit about the Arizona special election. Let's, yeah. Which is very fascinating, I think. Uh, I mean, so one of the things, and I don't know if you had noticed this, Michael, but as this week has been going on and prior weeks, it has been fascinating to me how th this election has gotten a ton of coverage and yet how little time was actually spent on the candidates themselves. <laughs> yeah. If, take, if you actually take a look at the major stories uh, from all the major news outlets, um, you will not find the candidates' names but in a few of them, which mm -hmm. I think yep. is fascinating. So just, just listeners, if you're interested, you got uh, Debbie Lesko as the Republican, and I'm going to butcher this. Can you pronounce the Democratic uh, 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 name? I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you get, give it a, give it a shot, Trey. Go ahead. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Tipper Nini. 
Now, you know, that might be, you know, I listen to so little news on, on TV that oftentimes with names, it's like, well, I don't know. I'm going to give this a shot and so forth. But, uh, you know, but I think let's go with that. You know, so, yeah. I listened to a number of pronunciations before, you know, yesterday and I just kept thinking, am I going to get this out? Am I? So by the way, I just want to apologize to her if I butchered your name. I, I have worked on this. So just a heads up. Maybe I should, you know, maybe, maybe we should listen to Fox and friends more often or something. <laughs> get more information on this. Well, I this week we probably should have. I mean, they yeah, had exactly. a really fascinating yeah. guest. Who Interesting Colin, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, but it was anyway. my crazy uncle, I think. Um, but, but, you know, I think that's a, a great point you make about the candidates. And to me, it actually makes a certain amount of sense because in in so many respects, this was such a vanilla type of race. I mean, there are no, neither of the candidates were weird or extreme or anything like that. No Roy Moorish type of stuff. And this was a pretty typical deep red congressional district. And that mm-hmm. to me, is what makes this so interesting. You know, and if you look at the spending, the campaign spending on from the campaigns themselves was just about the same, but outside spending there was a big difference. Huge. On the conservative side, it was just just short of 1.3 million. On the liberal side, just over 300,000, so a 100 you saw a million dollar advantage to Lesco, and yet and yet, you know, in a in a district that Trump carried by more than 20 points in 2016, the Republican sort of ekes out a victory under all those circumstances. And that's the sort of thing that even had, you know, a lot of Republicans saying, holy cow, we need to do something because this, we can't just say that this is some kind of weird sort of unusual thing. And we had a bad candidate or they had a good candidate, you know, this is, this is a pretty typical type of congressional race. And so, Understandably, when you look at all of the races that have been all the special elections, Democrats are outperforming their standard, the kind of standard projections by an average of 17 points. Mm-hmm. And that that's freaked out a lot of Republicans. Now, there are some Republicans who I think are sort of whistling past the graveyard saying, well, yeah, but the generic ballot only has Democrats up by around seven points or so. That's true. But people don't vote on the generic ballot. They vote on actual candidates. And so if I were certainly if I'm the RNCC, I'm pretty concerned about this and also should point out that Democrats have been raising money at a better clip, I believe, than Republicans as well. So, you know, again, given again the fact that in typical midterm elections, the party in power loses a bunch of seats. Mm -hmm. You know, this is this is something for Republicans to be concerned about, I think. Well, I, I mean, I agree to a point. However, okay. uh, the thing that I want to highlight here is that as political scientists, we I think most of us are going to uh, suggest that election, the actual process of campaigning an election, is not one of the major Absolutely. contributors yeah. to the to the outcome. And so I think those larger variables suggest this. So you, when you're looking at this, if you're a Republican, don't get me wrong, we have some there are some problems in the Republican Party. However, I think Democrats need to be careful when they're looking at these numbers to say, how much of this would have happened anyway, given the structural variables of being the party that's in power, the party that has the president. And then you also have to ask yourselves in these kinds of special elections, well, what's the kind of person who's turning out for the special election? In this election, we only had 173,708 votes. Well, that's not going to be your typical uh, voting sample size when it comes to the general election. 
either. So again, this does not let, as you put it, you know, Republicans can't just whistle past the graveyard. They have to take this seriously. However, Republic, Democrats would do well to pay attention to, to the political science on this and recognize that they were already in a good position. And I don't mean that it's not a shot. That's not a bad thing. It's just the truth that these larger structural variables were favoring them. And then they have to go from there to say, well, how much more of this is due to Trump's Republican Party? Right. You know, if you're if you're going to be super cynical about this, you would say, well, you know, maybe this is some plot by Republicans to act all super concerned and give Democrats this feeling of complacency. Like, for instance, oh, I don't know, during the 2016 presidential election, <laughs> where so many people just assumed, and I was one of them who said, oh, please, God, let Donald Trump be the nominee, and Hillary Clinton will, as much as I have issues with her, will waltz into the presidency, and, and uh, boy, that didn't quite turn out. So, uh, so yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, and it's hard to not focus on campaigns because that's what yeah. every, every news story is about the minutia of the campaign mm-hmm. as if that's what happens but you know when you when you take a look at the actual numbers persuasion that, that that's what generally people are thinking about when they're thinking about a campaign they're thinking you know you're persuading people to vote one way or the other it is almost a zero okay yeah. <laughs> uh, and again i mean i know we agree on this because this is established so, i mean maybe not everybody yeah. agrees with it. established science we'll get to that in a minute um but for the for the bulk of us we're going to agree with this and so i but it's really hard for the average uh viewer sure. to not think hey oh my goodness it has everything to do with what this candidate said this week, it had everything to do with, you know, their position to Trump. Those things have, have bearing, but they don't yeah. have the bearing that I think the average person has to say. And I think that's the story has been wrongly framed is, is my point. And again, that's not a past. Don't hear, hear me right. I'm not saying that that means that Republicans are A-OK, but it means that when you're analyzing this, you have to be careful to not go, see, this proves it. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and, and of course, the, the fact that, you know, if you just look at the, the political science, the research, the political science literature would say that, well, uh, Democrats are have a strong probability of regaining control of the House just based on what we know about midterm elections mm-hmm. in general. And so that would that would go to the argument that Republicans should be concerned, but not because of bad campaigns or the Trump effect, but just because of what happens typically in midterm elections. Which is why they need they do need to be worried because they have an uphill battle, right? They yeah. should be recognizing, wait a second, even if we had, you know, Jesus as the next pre- as our president <laughs> right now, we're still facing a, tr- a, tr- a trouble. <laughs> I think um, Jesus would be above forty percent in approval, but you know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's a fascinating question, and I, I dare not even hypothesize on that because then somebody's gonna like poke us on Facebook. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I believe the next, I mean, is there anything else you'd like to talk about, about the uh, special election? No, I'm, I'm interested in, in moving on to uh, uh, nominees and all kinds of fun about that. So I think that's our next story, isn't it? It is indeed, Ronnie Jackson. Um, so uh, Dr. Jackson, the White House's top physician, he pulled out uh, of the nomination really before it even completely got started. Uh, after it was his nomination was going, or I should say his uh, hearings were going to be postponed due to just 
a continued number of accusations that included him being uh, junk on the job, handling, handing out prescription drugs, and creating a hostile work environment. Uh, now, it's interesting, though, you know, in his comments, because these have not come out formally. You know, we don't know what, what this comes from. It's all kind of behind the scenes. Um, but he argues that, look, if they had any merit, I wouldn't have been selected and promoted. This is a quote from him. Um, and entrusted to service in such a sensitive, important role as a physician to three presidents over the past 12 years. Uh, and so it's interesting, you know, so you have Jackson saying, look, I'm going to pull out because this isn't working for the role, but I'm not saying that these accusations are anyway true. Uh, and we haven't even been into the bulk of it. So much of this is just kind of behind the scenes. So what do you think about all of this, Michael? To me, this is a sad commentary on how American politics works these days. Uh, I, I, I agree in a sense with, with, uh, uh, with Jackson in that, you know, these, these stories now, at least how I interpret these stories the, with the giving out prescription drugs, my understanding was basically like, Oh, you're having trouble sleeping. Here's an ambient. And that's like, so <laughs> not a big deal. The, the drunk on the job, you know, I, I, if you, if you have paid, been paying attention to what happens on some of these presidential trips, it sounds like the secret service for years has been like the, this kind of essentially a presidential protection fraternity where they have these wild keggers and do all this stuff with, with, with hookers and other stuff. And there's huge issues there. But again, this to me, it was not the issue. I don't think that Jackson is some, you know, horrible person or anything like that. And it never should have been the issue. The fact that it, it came to this, the issue to me is here is a man who was nominated to run the second largest agency in the federal government. Not only that, but an agency that's in huge crisis by many accounts that has a man who has no managerial experience at that kind of level. That to me is the issue. And the secondary issue is that this was just somebody who the president apparently said, oh, you know, I like him. He's a good guy and he's a doctor. And so, okay, he could run the VA. Like, are you kidding? No vetting, no coordination. Uh, these these ill-timed, these ridiculous tweets. To me, this is, if I'm a, if I'm a conservative and I'm not, this is what drives me crazy because it's, it's the president kind of shooting his own administration in the foot by not thinking these things through. You can't just have somebody with no experience really running the VA because he's a good guy. Now, maybe the president thinks that way because he feels like he's a good guy and he doesn't have any prior experience and look at, he's running the entire country and aren't things going swell? I, I don't know. Maybe that's his thinking. But I just think if, if you're a conservative, you have to think, my God, what a bunch of wasted opportunities. You know, I agree. I, I in part agree with you. But I think that you're right is, is that none of that was the real reason that he gets torpedoed. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so as a result, all, all that has happened here is instead of bringing an important issue to the fore, uh, a, a guy who we have absolutely no evidence has done anything wrong, just gets his name raked to the mud it, so that we don't have a more difficult conversation about who should be and shouldn't be running the VA. Yeah. And, and I think that is, you know, that, that's basically Congress and both parties falling down on their job to say, look, we know some of this stuff is boring. You know, it's not particularly exciting to have, you know, a conversation about managerial experience, right? It is not. It's, it's never going to be prime time news uh, the way we do it right now. But that doesn't mean that that's not the thing. That's not the conversation that we ought to have had. And so we've actually, you've, you've, there's been a missed opportunity 
to talk about something that's important and meaningful uh, so that we could have kind of secondhand rumors about uh, uh, Dr. Jackson. And again, this is not, I'm not saying that he's right or he's wrong. I don't, I honestly, I don't know. I have no way of knowing. But these kinds of secondhand rumors, th that's not interesting. That's, yeah. that's nothing. We haven't even had a con uh, the hearing. So to say that we now know something about him is ludicrous. I mean, that'd be like uh, assuming you know something about me because some one random student whispered to their mom something and then you talk to the mom. Like, okay, yeah. maybe, you know, I don't know what, right? So I don't know. I, and I, I'm to just me, deeply disappointed no, with that process. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. You know, to me, it reminds me of that. I, I actually... I mean, this might sound, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I actually don't care if necessarily if he was drunk on duty, as long as he could do his job, you know, it reminds me of that, that Abraham Lincoln quote. It's probably not actually something Lincoln said when, you know, other, other generals, other folks were telling him that Grant was his big drunk. And he said, well, I wish you'd tell me the brand of whiskey he drinks. I'd like to send a barrel of it to my other generals, you know, and it, <laughs> yeah. it, but, but the point being is what we should care about is, is competence and experience and so forth. And if you can do the job, assuming you're that, you know, morally unfit, which is another issue, then that's what we want. We want the best person for the job. And the idea that Ronnie Jackson, whatever his character, uh, whatever he did as White House physician is the best person to run this agency, that's just ludicrous. Well, and again, though, I mean, even if you want to say, hey, look, I think somebody who's a drunk, even if you want to take the stand that they shouldn't be doing this, we don't know any more about that now than we did exactly. when this yeah. process started. Yeah. And that, that's another problem. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying is, is if somebody potentially has a rumor about you drinking too much, that should be the thing that blows you up as opposed to the actual exactly. problem. Yeah. That, anyway, so, yes. Yeah. Sounds like we agree. But now moving to a man whose character maybe more rightfully has been impugned recently. Scott oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and there's and there's kind of two things going on, listeners, with Scott Pruitt right now, who is the the head of the EPA. Uh, one, obviously, he has had a number of potential ethical and financial problems uh, from flying first class, so that he doesn't have to be with people who don't like him, uh, to spending forty three thousand dollars on a privacy booth. By the way, it, it's always fascinating to me. You know, that's like what I think intro level professors make at a lot of institutions. Anyway, um, just for his privacy booth. Uh, and we, we can go down a list. We won't do that right this second, but that's on one side. The other big interesting thing that is, has moved is has been his now new rule to prohibit what is so-called quote unquote secret science. Oh God. Yeah, now, exactly. And I think we're going to probably spend some time on this, Michael, because so I, I want to talk about but this I, for a minute. Secret science. I want science, to say. That, that I want to say I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I wanted to say I totally agree with you that these are separate issues. And I just wanted to point out that a lot of times people conflate these two things. And so I just wanted to, you know, voice my agreement that those these are two things that should be looked at separately. Yes, for sure. Because the secret science, this is basically studies that make and use data that is kept confidential generally for privacy reasons. Now, I recognize that not all of our listeners might know how the scientific process like works on the ground. So just a heads up, and I think both of us can, can speak to this, there are a number of kind of ethical obligations that researchers have 
to the participants in their studies. And especially when the more personal that becomes, the greater the onerous is on the researcher to uh, ensure that there will be a protection of their human subjects. As a matter of fact, there are generally boards at, at colleges that review anytime you're going to have human subjects. And if you, if you go to a certain level of uh, invasiveness, one of the things that you have to guarantee is that data cannot be individualized onto certain people. And that there's even, you know, I mean, once upon a time, it'd be things like the information will be kept in locked cabinets and locked drawers. And you know, today, different kinds of uh, encryption requirements for these kinds of data. And, and, and effectively, this is what is at stake here with with secret science, because what Scott Pruitt in this rule is arguing is that studies where you can't just grab every little bit of individualized patient data, um, if it's under confidentiality, can't be considered in EPA rulemaking. And that's yeah. what the secret science is. Uh, and so, Michael, I, mean, I have a lot to say, but I'm going to let you start. What do you think about it? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I think... I think certainly there's an important the transparency to the extent that we can we can do it with protecting people is very important. And I agree with to that extent. But I think that that's not really the the intent of this, as you point for all the reasons you pointed out. And in fact, there were some internal memos that were released under a Freedom of Information, Freedom of Information Act request show that I think show fairly convincingly that the EPA, the top brass, their concern here was not really with sort of keeping science transparent, but with, uh, I would argue, tilting the decks. In fact, some of these memos show that, well, how can we do this to not affect industry research? Because we want that in there, you know, and uh, we want to make sure that's not an issue, essentially. And so I think that's definitely just part of what we've seen with Scott Pruitt, who, you know, made a career for himself in Oklahoma suing the EPA as his Oklahoma uh, attorney general there. And so I have a huge problem with this. And as do a lot of, you know, there have been a union of concerned scientists and other groups saying that we just can't, this just won't be workable in a sense. And in fact, this might not actually be legally okay because there are a number of congressional requirements saying that the EPA use the best available science in developing their rules. And so if this goes into effect after the 30-day comment period, which it almost certainly will, there will be lawsuits and we'll kind of see how that works out. But you know, I think this is a I think this is a huge problem. And I should point out it, it kind of to me goes along with this other sort of, well, we're trying to make this fair and, and impartial, just like that earlier decision by Pruitt to that ruled that getting an EPA grant and serving on an EPA science advisory panel is a conflict of interest. Okay, maybe. But working for a state agency that sues the EPA or an industry being regulated by the EPA and also serving on an advisory panel, that isn't a conflict of interest, you know? So if you're going to play this game, you need to actually be fair in this. And that, that's not what it's about. I mean, Scott Pruitt is interested in defanging the EPA and that's what he's trying to do here. Exactly. And, and he's doing it under the guise. I mean, again, even if you think the EPA is doing the wrong things, right? So just hear what I'm saying. It is wrong to go about it this way. Be yes. straightforward. You know, if you think the EPA needs to deregulate things, then deregulate them and just be open about that. But creating this quote unquote secret science ploy and to to stigmatize people who are very conscientious conscientiously and with deep ethical implications 
keeping people's data private, which is what we'd want. I mean, imagine if I told you, hey, you know, I'm going to release all of your health uh, stats and that they're individualized to you. You know, or imagine if, you know, I, I don't know if you've done some of these. I've done studies where you're looking at students' grades. Imagine if I yeah. said, well, yeah, this, this grade belonged to Susie Parker. And here's what she did the whole way, right? No one would think that that was okay. But you, you brand it secret science, and then suddenly it seems like yeah. they're doing sleazy things when really what they're doing, and that's what's so just horrendous here, is the exact opposite. They, it should be called privacy science, or it should be called ethical science. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and certainly there are ways in, in certain instances where you can work around this. But a related concern is that if participants know that all of this will be publicly available, it might make it a lot more difficult. In fact, it almost certainly will make it a lot more difficult to recruit study participants. And, and that's a big deal. So, you know, there, there were so many reasons to not do this. Another point I want to make is this idea of this being, you know, just this kind of uh, secret sort of, you know, uh, unverifiable thing, you know, for science, for these sort of results to be published and get out there, they have to go through the scientific peer review process, which, you know, is a hugely important part of what we do as, you know, whether it's social scientists or medical scientists or what have you. And you and I know are both familiar with that. And, and that's my problem with treating industry researchers equal to this in the first place, because it doesn't have to go through this peer review process that academic research does. So, and that's something that's not really talked about. It's not just like somebody comes out with a study and here's a conflicting study from industry. That study that's published in the journal of whatever had to be reviewed by independent people who did not know who the original people working on it was and had to go through that process, which industry research doesn't have to. And I think that's hugely important. It is. And as, as we take a look at, say, for instance, I know this is important to both of us. When we take a look at a lot of the studies that have been done on food, for example, we're seeing that industry research has been a crock in a number of, you know, and yeah, we no, have, yeah. as a matter of fact, in some cases, and this doesn't mean that every scientist is, is uh, devoid of culpability. I mean, we've, we've seen cases where obviously uh, people in the sugar industry wanted to push the blame onto fat, uh, you know, a number of years ago. And so that is what means. So again, that may not seem like a big deal, but when you're trying to talk about, you know, how should we make, you know, the best possible rules? we can have a disagreement about whether we ought to make a rule or not. But if, the, if, we've, if we've already agreed we're going to make a rule about something, then shouldn't we be using the absolute best data? And history suggests that industry data, you don't have to throw it out, but you need to, it needs to at least be placed in external context at a minimum. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, as the other part of this, which I would agree is, is less important. You know, because Scott Pruitt testified before congressional committees and so forth. And you know, I, I was, I could say disappointed, but not surprised to see him essentially blaming subordinates for mm -hmm. everything that happened. Well, I didn't know I'm out of the loop and, uh, but they did it and not me. And I thought, wow, that's, he's either lying or he's just a really bad manager for one thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's this supposed fiscal conservative who seems to have no problem spending lavishly on the taxpayer's dime without a whole lot of oversight. And we've seen this again and again from Trump administration officials. And, and, and okay, to me, I think Pruitt's right. There's nothing illegal or criminal here. But certainly government officials, both liberal and conservative, have been forced out for far 
less. And that this this Republican, uh, to some Republican spin, that this is all about his policy decisions and it's a, a witch hunt and so forth. You know, OK, sure. There was no no way that liberals would be going after him as strongly if he were sort of a moderate type of person. But you can't just ignore this pattern of behavior. Uh, I and, you know I wonder if maybe it's almost better for pro-environment forces uh, like myself that Pruitt does seem so corrupt, which makes him seem a lot more legitimate. If I were President Trump, I might want to remove him and put in someone who would be just as anti-EPA but would be, you know, not as at least seemingly corrupt. But I don't know. It doesn't seem I know President Trump seems to like Scott Pruitt personally, like his kind of uh, bombastic type of, you know, take no prisoner sort of approach. But I would say that that's exactly the sort of thing you don't want when you're trying to enact what's a fairly radical deregulatory agenda. You know, and I agree. This is one of the things that just drives me sane as a fiscal conservative because both sides simply play play the service charge of we're you know the money opposite directions if this if this was reversed republicans would be out there talking about how this is the most horrible thing since the end of time that he's spending forty three thousand dollars on a privacy boot and hundreds of thousands of dollars on first class flight flights and i mean and I think that is a real policy issue. But what just tires me is that it's, it never ends up being a real policy issue because both sides just brandish it around like a weapon yeah. as opposed to, 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 to having a consistent tact on this. So, you know, just I can imagine the circumstance being reversed. And this is not me just trying to say, oh, well, Democrats do the same thing, too. I'm just saying when it comes to when it comes to fiscal responsibility, that issue has become nothing more than a weapon of the moment. And when you get things like this, that just you just think, throw this guy out for no other reason than wasting all this money. I mean, I'm, uh-huh. I am a fiscal conservative, but nobody is going to do that because this is a constantly, this is just a torch that gets passed back and forth. And it just, that one frustrates me to no end. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. So, well, I think that that mean. Is there anything else that we can say about? Pruitt no, I that, think that, uh... that that pretty much pretty much does it. Yeah, I think. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think we both had some things we were reading that we wanted to uh, recommend to listeners this week, Michael. So, why don't yeah. you get us started? Well, I am, uh, as, as I mentioned a few weeks ago to the listeners, I I read biographies before bed. It's just kind of a thing I fallen into doing. And uh, my most recent one, this is a fascinating one, a figure that I've admired for a long time. H.L. Uh, Mencken, he's a, he's a Baltimore uh, reporter, uh, commentator in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, a, a fast, uh, Just a, a great figure. Uh, he uh, had a lot to say about, uh, not too uh, complimentary either, about democracy and politicians. One of my favorite quotes by him is, I enjoy democracy immensely. It is incomparably idiotic and hence incomparably amusing. Uh, and <laughs> he... He was uh, he was quite a character, uh, just a, sort of a hero of mine, actually, growing up. And the biography I'm reading of him right now is called Mencken, the American Iconoclast by Marion Elizabeth Rogers. And I would also recommend a book that Mencken himself wrote called Notes on Democracy, which is full of those sort of observations and so forth. He's uh, he is just 
just great fun to read. Uh, he's very anti-democracy. It's kind of uh, refreshing in, in a way. Some people might find him overly cynical, but he's been a hero of mine for a long time, and I'm really enjoying that that, that uh, biography. So what do you have? Trey? You know, that's so funny. I do a similar thing. It's it's one of the few times that I just I love my Kindle Paperwhite because yeah, everything exactly. can be Me off. Too. And you can <laughs> yeah. be laying down. It's not so heavy. Um, but it's funny. There has been a book on my list for a long time, and uh, – it's been more than a day, but it's a few weeks ago. Uh, Kindle actually they had for World Book Day. They had a, they had a bunch of books for free, and one of the ones was the one on my want to read buy list. And you gotta love it when that happens. Oh yeah, uh, it's called A River in Darkness: uh, One Man's Escape from North Korea. And talk about the perfect time to have yeah, <laughs> that book. Wow. Uh, it's actually, uh, and again, speaking of uh, butchering names, I'm going to try to do this the best I can. Ishikawa. Um, he grows up or is born, I should say in Japan and he is born to a Korean uh, father and a Japanese mother. And his father has, uh, has a very difficult life in Japan. It's kind of abusive. And so they're part of a group of individuals, not a lot of people to think about in history who were quote unquote repatriated. In other words, they, they returned, even though they weren't originally from there, originally from South returned to North Korea. Um, and so his mom who was Japan, Japanese, uh, went with them as well, of course. And it's about both his going from Japan to North Korea as a young boy, then his life uh, in North Korea, and which is a really fascinating inside, uh, inside story. But he would actually then eventually escape from North Korea later uh, as, a, as an older adult. Um, and it's, just, it's both a fascinating tale about places you don't normally get an insight into, and also in a period in history, I think that a lot of Americans... Um, don't know a lot about the details of it, at least. And yeah. so I, I, I'm, it's, a, it's been a really fascinating read. And uh, anybody who, uh, who, who would like to you know, read something. Now, by the way, it's not like happy. So when you're going to bed, just be forewarned. <laughs> but it yeah, is. Escape from honest. North Korea does not exactly sound super happy. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there was, there was no pictures, no handshakes for his escape. Just a heads up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's my recommendation for this. That sounds great. Well, Wow, we we have, we have come to the end of this uh, just packed full to the brim episode. We we got we got through an amazingly busy week. Yes, we did. Yes, well, thanks everyone for listening. We we do hope you like what you heard, and of course, listener support is what allows us to do what we do every week. We truly do appreciate it. And so, if you'd like to help us out, go to politicsguys.com/support. That's a direct link, or you can just go to politicsguys.com and click on support in the main menu there. That would be great. Subscribing to the show also does help a lot, as does sharing episodes. Uh, so word of mouth, all as always, is our best advertising. We really do appreciate it, as we also appreciate leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff all week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.